may grab a seat as you do grab your Bible. Find the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 2 of Philippians. If you need a Bible under a seat close by, you'll find a copy of God's Word. Grab that. Uh, turn to the table of contents. Find this book towards the back of your Bible, Philippians. If you don't own a Bible, please leave with that one. We would love for you, if you didn't walk in with a copy of God's Word, to walk out of here with a copy of God's Word. That's our gift to you. Philippians chapter 2. Um, Tim Keller, Tim Keller's a, a pastor and um, kind of leading Christian thinker, author. He's, he pastors out of New York City, and God just, um, out of God's wisdom, he called him into New York City because Tim Keller just has an unbelievable ministry with people who are kind of seeking and, and, and trying to figure out, is this faith in Jesus thing legit? Is it real? And um, Tim Keller, I was listening to a sermon yesterday while I was running of Tim Keller preaching the passage we're going to study today. And um, my first thought was, we should just play that message tomorrow. That would be awesome. Uh, but my second thought was, I didn't have an introduction for the message. And I was all week struggling with, what's the introduction to this message? I think this text doesn't need an introduction. But he said it best. Tim Keller said it best when he said this. If all of Scripture is a mountain range, this passage is one of the two or three highest peaks on it. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, we could preach on every single Sunday for the next, next 11 years, and we would just be scratching the surface of the depths of the riches that are hidden in the passage today. And so on that note, we're praying right now, we're wasting no time in an introduction, and we're getting right into God's word. We ready? Father, come now. Um, Lord, this needs no introduction. But God, I beg, your spirit has to come now. If we don't, um, our tendency will be to agree with all of these things intellectually, to let them stay in the realm of theory or concept. But Lord, you have to drive them to our heart. Lord, as we study in the passage, the great empty, emptying of who you are for us because of you love, your love for us, um, God, would we feel this? Would we not just agree with it with our head? Would we feel it with our heart? Would we understand in the principle of what you've called us out to of um, considering others better than ourselves and then with the power that you put into it of us fixing our eyes on you and how you've done that, God, please help us now as your word goes out. Lord, who is fit to preach a passage like this, no one is, but Lord, thank you for your spirit who does not allow your word to return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one thing that's important that we all start on kind of the same foundation is in, in this regard, um, remember that this book we're studying, Philippians, is a letter. Um, we have later, the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired. It means we've added those later to try to help us study the Bible in a systematic way. So Paul didn't get to this part in the letter and now say, and now for chapter two of my letter. He just kept writing. And so sometimes um, the chapter verse divisions in our Bible are really helpful to help us understand God's word in a systematic way. Sometimes I think chapter divisions can actually take away from the, the, the momentum that Paul has going as he writes here. And so because of that, we need to jump back up to 127, Philippians 127, and we need to 
read into chapter 2 with what Paul has said coming out of chapter 1. We ready? Everyone say yes. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with, what's he say next, with what? With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, therefore, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of what? Say it, say it, say it. I want you to say it. Be being of the what? Same mind. Having the what? Same love. You, you get where we're going. Being in what? Full accord and having what? One mind. No, just stop right there. I mean, what we have to see as we get into this very first paragraph of Philippians uh, chapter 2 is this paragraph is going to take us into some of the deepest treasures and riches of all of the faith. But if we divorce what Paul's point is and what he's going to talk about Jesus, we'll miss the point. This is a paragraph about unity. This is a paragraph about unity. He flows right out of what his discussion in um, uh, the end of chapter 1. He flows right into it in chapter 2. This is all about being of one mind. Go back to uh, Philippians 2, uh, verse 1, and I need you to help me here. Every time you see a comma in verse 1, every time you see a comma, I'm going to pause and you're going to say, and there is. Got it? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This is all implied. This is right there in the text, all implied. As Paul is writing this, he's going, these are the things that are true of us in Jesus. These things are true of a Jesus community people. And he says, because they're true, now verse 2, complete my what? Complete my joy. What? Do you remember the things Paul was saying in chapter 1? Where is he writing this from again? He's writing this thing from prison. And what's he saying while he's in prison for Jesus? I rejoice. I have joy. I'm glad. And then he goes on to say, listen, if I get released from prison, joy. If I die for this, what? Joy. And now we get to Philippians 2.2 and he says, complete my joy. Paul, I thought your joy was complete. What is incomplete about your joy, Paul? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is the running theme here. He says, complete my joy, you guys, my children in the faith. Paul talking to the Philippians. Be crazy unified. Um, parents, you'll get this. Hopefully you haven't experienced this. If you have, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. 
parents, if you haven't, imagine this. Imagine you got two kids who won't even talk. Um, if one of them's at a family function, the other will wait till that one leaves before they come. They haven't spoken in years. When, when by chance they accidentally come to the same place at the same time, you can cut the tension in the room with a knife. You get what Paul's saying here? Complete my joy by being of one mind. There's some disunity going on. He's actually going to call it out later in the letter. He's going to call out two people in particular. Can you imagine that? Uh, Paul sent a letter. Guys, let's read it. Hey, Brock and Erica, stop being idiots. <laughs> Get unified. Like, can you imagine that? He's going to call out some of the disunity here, specifically as the letter goes. But Paul is passionate right now. Complete my joy by being of one mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord. That means one soul. And then he says the same thing again. Having one mind. Do you think Paul's making a point here about something? From the end of chapter 1, right into chapter 2, this is about unity. And the same point that Paul laid down for the Philippians believers is the point for us today. Jesus followers are to be defined by a one mind unity. Have you ever, um, you ever watched like a really great sports team? I'm not talking about like they had a couple good individuals on it. I'm talking about the way they played as a team. And you're like, that's beautiful. Have you ever listened to a group of singers like, aren't we blessed with our worship team here? And you've, you hear them harmonize, and I don't even know what I just said because I'm so unmusical, but I know that's a good thing. You hear them harmonize and like one of them's playing, and you're like, that's sweet. You don't, you don't see any of the parts of it. You just experience the whole of it. And you're like, that's beautiful. Paul says, Jesus community's like that. Where you don't see any of the individual parts of it. You experience the unity of the whole of it. He goes, that's when a Jesus community is at its most powerful. Now, not too much application on this because the rest of the paragraph gets into the application. Remember, this is about Jesus' people being unified. And now Paul's going to go, here's how that is killed, and here's how that flourishes. Verse 3. Do, do nothing. Um, the Greek word there, the Greek words behind the English, um, that literally means this, do nothing. You caught that. From... Selfish ambition, or what? Now just let's stop right there with that comma. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Here's what selfish ambition is. Selfish ambition is a striving to exclusively advance yourself. Striving to exclusively advance yourself. Now, some of you are in here, and you may be new to the whole Jesus thing. You might not be a Jesus follower yet. And you look at something like yours, you're like, I'm confused. Like, that's all I've been told my whole life. Do whatever it takes to, like, advance yourself. Do whatever it takes for you to, like, climb the ladder and to do whatever it takes to go higher and higher and more people under you. And, and Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. 
Don't make it your driving goal to exclusively advance yourself. And then he says, related to this, uh, do nothing from this conceit thing. Conceit is this. Conceit is arrogant pride that seeks your own elevation, glory, and honor. How many of us, how many of you have ever been around conceited people? I asked myself that question studying this this week. Oh, yeah, look, well, let's think of all the conceited people. And the Spirit of God was like, oh, Brock, how often have you been conceited? Brock, let's, let's start there. Let's talk about arrogant pride that seeks your own elevation, glory, and honor. Uh, we knew, uh, Erica and I knew we would plant a church one day from the time we were about 20, 21. And um, we actually started making plans at like 20, 21, thinking like, we can go do this. I can, I can, I can do this. Let me just say, if I would have pastored a church at 20, um, that would be an ugly church. So much arrogant pride seeking my own elevation, glory, and honor that the Lord for the next six years until the formation of this thing had to just chop away at in a good way, and in a painful way. Selfish ambition in conceit. Paul says, remember, what's the paragraph about? What's the paragraph about? It's about unity. Selfish ambition and conceit grows in this soil of pride, and God hates pride. God hates pride because it's an assault on his glory, and God hates pride because it's an assault on his people's unity. Prideful people are like spoiled milk. You get a, you get a whiff of it, and you're just like, oh, it's repulsive. And prideful people are like spoiled milk. When that pride bubbles off, when I'm doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit, it is a unity killer. This passage is about unity, but the second point is this. Humility is the mortar that holds unity together. Humility is the mortar that holds unity together. Keep reading here. I'm going to ask you to do something corny coming up, okay? But we're all going to do it because we're family. Deal? Deal? <laughs> Some of you aren't making the deal. Um, <laughs> let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Go back to verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or consent, but in, what's the word? But in what? But in humility. Like as repulsive as pride is, how sweet to the tongue is just even that word humility. Like, but when you get to this, but in humility part, you just want to go, oh. So that's what we're going to do, okay? When I say, but in humility, you're all going to go, oh. I know some of you aren't, because you're like, I don't, I'm not doing that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. <sighs> Count others more significant than yourselves. Wait. You know what the recurring theme we see in the book of Philippians is? It's this joy thing. Joy is an enduring, non-circumstantial delight. 
And we're calling this gospel joy because what we see in Paul's life is that his joy is so tethered to the gospel that Jesus Christ has come, has paid for his sin, has died in his place, has risen to life that Paul could have life too. And that's why Paul can say, whether it means prison or death, my joy, I got joy. Now, you come to this, and Paul's giving us the practical command. If, if, if someone asks you this, what was church about Sunday? You can say, it was about considering others more significant than myself as I seek, uh, as I seek unity. Look at what he says here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This joy thing. Culture, people will tell us, you want joy? Seek your own interests. You want joy? See, do it. Seek your own interests. What are you passionate about? What are you interested in? Seek it. It'll bring you joy. Listen, living for ourselves will only produce misery. Living a life that considers others more significant than ourselves, there is a recipe for joy. The kingdom of God is a backwards kingdom. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. You want to be the greatest? Be the servant. You want, you want joy in your life? Don't live for yourself. It's sweet. It is so sweet. And it's so hard to learn, isn't it? And like when I think I got it, I wake up the next day and I'm just a selfish guy doing what I want again. It's this daily battle of crucifying ourselves. But here it is. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's this humility thing. In humility, count others better than yourselves. What mortar is to a brick wall, what mortar is to a brick wall, humility is to unity. What mortar is to the holding up of bricks, humility is to the holding up of unity amongst a group of people. Uh, you show me, you show me a team at work, not unified. I'll show you somewhere in their pride. You, you, you show me a family or marriage that is completely fractured and fragmented. I will show you somewhere in their pride. You show me an athletic team that won't play like a team, I'll show you pride. You show a church family that's fractured and divided and backbiting and others, there is pride at the heart of that. And Paul says... Unity, unity, unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but consider consider others more significant than yourselves, looking to their interests before your own. Um. Easy or hard to do? Easy or hard to do? I would up the ante on that. I would say impossible. Impossible. Inside this man is a heart that loves and wants to love only this man. Pre-Jesus, without Jesus, just know it. Your pastor is a self-absorbed, selfish, without Jesus working on his heart, only wants what he wants when he wants it. Anyone else want to relate to me? You're just going to leave me hanging on that. It's impossible, and Paul knows it. Why do I know he knows it? Because where he goes in verse 
five. Before you look there, what happens is a lot of times this paragraph of scripture gets taught in two sermons. We preach one through four and we walk out with a message like, go serve each other. Go consider others better than yourselves. It's one paragraph on a purpose because the principle he gives us in the first four verses, he's now going to pack with power of how we actually live it out in verses 5 through 11. This is massive Bible study principle. You want to go to the classroom for a minute? Let's go to the classroom. We all good on that? Massive Bible study principle. Because so many of us, we see this book as just a book of rules. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And teenage, uh, teenage Christians in here, I, I, I appeal to you to hear me right now because I saw this book too much as just a book of rules growing up. And God is just some cosmic killjoy, just doesn't want me to have any fun. Watch, watch when you study the Bible. And when God, out of love for us, lays down a command, a do or a don't, look immediately for the gospel tie to it. Do not miss that. If we miss the gospel tie, we will just see the Bible as a list of rules. This is, this is what makes God so sweet. He goes, I don't just want your rote rule following. I want this heart that wants to obey because you love me. And this is why he goes where he goes, starting in verse 5. Remember what he's just told us. Nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. Consider others more significant than yourselves, looking to their needs. By the way, humility is shown by living that out, looking to their needs, not by what we say. You ever run into someone? What's what's one of your strengths? Oh, man, I'm just like super humble. (laughs) Like... Probably one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. <laughs> like, humility is borne out by considering others' needs before. It's borne out in living. And he goes, if we need a model and a motivation for that, let me remind us of someone. Verse 5. Here's the word again. Have this mind. What mind? The mindset that considers others more significant than ourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Whoa. We have access to a mind that thinks like this in Christ Jesus. Now let's talk about Jesus. Hey, and I just encourage you, just, I know some of you are like, no, I'm so type A, I can't not take notes right now. Just like put the pen down. And let's just get our eyes on Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This right here is one of the deepest, richest doctrinal realities of all of our faith. 
the great emptying, the great kenosis. Paul goes, we'll never live a life considering others more significant than ourselves, looking to their needs until we understand how Jesus did that for us. Step by step, Christ emptied for us. Back to the beginning of six. Who though he was in the form of God, Jesus is God. Guess what? Jesus always was God. And guess what? He always will be God. When it says, though he was in the form of God, that is not saying that he was kind of cut from the same cloth, that he's, that he's the Robin to God as Batman, that he's God-ish or God-like or has some qualities of God. When it says he was in the form of God, Greek word morphe literally means of the same substance. Our Savior is, was, and always will be God. God, big G, big O, big D, God. Jesus was not, a, as I have been tried to be taught by some people, a good moral religious teacher only. He was not someone who, as people will tell you, just lived the most beautiful life the world has ever seen. Yeah, I know he did because he was God. And until you get that, you'll never appreciate the emptying that's about to be described. For though he was in the form of God, Morphe, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to the privileges he rightfully had as God. How many times have we said throughout life, you can't do that. I have a right to that. That is not just, but that's not just. I won't let it go because that's not just. Imagine if Jesus would have played that card. He could have. Go walk around earth like a human? Die? He didn't cling to it. He didn't clench his fists. But then it is, beginning of seven, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus is God. He was God. He always will be God. And Jesus emptied himself and became a servant. Let's talk about what he emptied himself of and what he didn't. Jesus, when he came to earth, this is crucial. This is crucial for our faith. He did not empty himself of any of his godhood. He was 100% God when he walked here. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was God while he was in the majesty of heaven, and then he set his godness on the shelf, and he came to earth, and he lived as a man, and then when he ex was exalted again, he became God again. He was, he is, and he always will be God. So what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of the rightful, majestic, heavenly privileges he had as God. He poured those things out so he could be filled with this taking on the form, there it is again, morphe, the very essence of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. 
Jesus is, was, and always will be God. He emptied himself and became a servant. He took on human form. Think about this. Jesus was hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus grieved. Jesus, the word says, was tempted in every way just as we are. Jesus experienced emotional agony. Jesus experienced physical pain. He took on human form. He walked the gamut of emotions that we all walk. He experienced the physical and emotional weights and pains we all did. And then... The humiliation goes deeper. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul makes sure to highlight the type of death he became obedient to. Even death on what? And so um, in our day, 2,000 plus years later, the cross, you know, we, we wear it on a necklace, which is sweet. I think that's great. Right? Really, I mean that. I really do. What a great way to symbolize who we are and what we're all about. No one in Jesus' day would have put that on a necklace. Like if you were, we strolled in in Jesus' day and we got a crossing and other people have been like, do you know what that is? A cross was um, set aside for convicted criminals. Those who had egregiously violated the law. That's who the cross was for. And what was the cross like? Uh, Lee Strobel, you may have heard of him. He was an atheist or agnostic journalist. Um, He set out to try to unpack the Jesus story from the perspective of a journalist to figure out, is this, can I trust this thing? Is this legit? He found at the end of his journey that it was. He is now a committed Christian. God's using him to tell the story of his journey. His journey and the interviews with scholars a lot smarter than us is in a book called The Case for Christ. And because I think we have, the cross is so sentimental to us, maybe it loses some of the total emptying that really happened here. And so this is going to be an extended reading. Focus hard. It'll be a little longer than you're used to just typically hearing someone read from. But we need to hear the full picture of the emptying of our Savior. In an interview with Alexander Metherall, uh, he's a medical doctor and also a PhD in engineering. And... Um, He's an expert on crucifixion and understanding what happens during crucifixion. And this is Lee Strobel. He says, initially I wanted to elicit from Methrall a basic description of the events leading up to Jesus' death. So after a time of social chat, I put down my iced tea and shifted in my chair and faced him squarely. Could you paint a picture of what happened to Jesus, I asked. He cleared his throat. It began after the Last Supper. He said, Jesus went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there, if you remember, he prayed all night. 
Now, during that process, he was anticipating the, com- uh, the coming events of the next day. Since he knew the amount of suffering he was going to have to endure, he was quite naturally experience- experiencing a great deal of psychological distress. I raised my hand to stop him. Whoa, here's where skeptics have a field day. I told him. The Gospels tell us he began to sweat blood at this point. Now, come on, isn't that just a product of some overactive imaginations? Doesn't that call into question the accuracy of the gospel writers? Unfazed, Metherol shook his head, not at all, he replied. This is a known medical condition called hematidrosis. It's not very common, but it's associated with a high degree of psychological stress. What happens is that the severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries and the sweat glands. As a result, there's a small amount of bleeding into these glands, and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, just a very, very small amount. Though a bit chastened, I pressed on. Did this have any other effect on the body? What this did was set up the skin to be extremely fragile, so that when Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldier the next day, his skin would be very, very sensitive. Well, I thought, here we go. I braced myself for the grim images I knew were about to flood my mind. I'd seen plenty of dead bodies as a journalist. Casualties of car accidents, fires, and crime syndicate retribution. But there was something especially unnerving of hearing about someone being intentionally brutalized by executioners determined to extract maximum suffering. Tell me, I said, what was the flogging like? Methril's eyes never left me. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had pieces of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. It was just terrible. Methyl paused. Go on, I said. One physician who has studied Roman beatings said, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a flogging by saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they could be crucified. At the least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock. Metherol had just thrown out a medical term I didn't know. What does hypovolemic shock mean, I asked. Hypo means low, vol refers to volume, emic means blood. So hypovolemic shock means the person is suffering the effects of losing a large amount of blood. The doctor explained, this does four things. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing faintings or collapse. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace the lost blood volume. Do you see evidence of this in the gospel accounts? Yes, most definitely, he replied. Jesus was in hypovolemic shock as he staggered up the road to the execution site at Calvary, carrying the horizontal beam of the cross. 
Finally, Jesus collapsed and the Roman soldier ordered Simon to carry the cross for him. Later we read that Jesus said, I thirst, at which point a sip of vinegar was offered to him. Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there's no question that Jesus was already in serious to critical condition even before the nails were driven through the hands and feet. As, as distasteful as the description of the flogging was, I, was, I knew that even more repugnant testimony was yet to come. That's because historians are unanimous that Jesus survived the beating that day and went on to the cross, which is where the real issue lies. These days, when condemned criminals are strapped down and injected with poisons or secured to a wooden chair and subjected to a surge of electricity, the circumstances are highly controlled. Death comes quickly and predictably. Medical examiners carefully certify the victim's passing from close proximity. Witnesses scrutinize everything from beginning to end. But how certain was death by this crude, slow, and rather inexact form of execution called crucifixion? In fact, most people aren't sure how the cross kills its victims. And without a, without a trained medical examiner to officially attest that Jesus had died, might he have escaped the experience brutalized and bleeding but nev nevertheless alive? I began to unpack these issues. What happened when he arrived at the site of the crucifixion, I asked? He would have been laid down, and his hands would have been nailed in the outstretched position to the horizontal beam. This crossbar was called the patibulum, and at, this, and at this stage, it was separate from the vertical beam, which was permanently set in the ground. I was having difficulty visualizing this. I needed more details. Nailed with what, I asked. Nailed where? The Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrists, Methrell said, pointing about an inch or so below his left palm. Hold it, I interrupted. I thought the nails pierced his palms. That's what all the paintings show. In fact, it's become a standard symbol representing the crucifixion. Through the wrists, he replied. This was a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails went through the wrists, although this was considered part of the hand in the language of the day. And it's important to understand that the nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going out to the hand. And it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. Since I have only a rudimentary knowledge of the human anatomy, I wasn't sure what this meant. What sort of pain would this have produced, I asked. Let me put it this way. Do you know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow and hit your funny bone? That's actually another nerve. It's called the ulna nerve. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. Well, picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. Emphasizing the word squeezing as he twisted an imaginary pair of pliers. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. I winced at the image and squirmed in my chair. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused during the crucifixion. At this point, Jesus was hoisted at the crossbar. Stay with me now. The crossbar was attached to the vertical stake and the nails were driven through Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves in his feet would have been crushed and there would have been a similar type of pain. Crushed and severed nerves were certainly bad enough, but I needed to know about the effect that hanging from the cross would have had on Jesus. What stresses would this have put on his body? 
Methrol answered, first of all, his arms would have immediately been stretched, probably about six inches in length. And both shoulders would have become dislocated. You can determine this with simple mathematical equations. This fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 22, which foretold the crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place. My bones are out of joint. Methrel had made his point graphically about the pain endured as the crucifixion process began. But I needed to get to what finally claims the life of a crucifixion victim because that's the pivotal issue in determining whether death can be faked or eluded. So I put the cause of death question directly to Methrel. Once a person's hanging in the vertical position, he replied, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles in the diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled positions. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he would have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over, and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. As the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of death, which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died of cardiac arrest. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Don't miss it. What is Paul's point? Paul's point, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, if you need a model and motivation of that, just look at the Savior. Final point, Jesus is both the model and the motivation for what humility-seeking unity looks like. Jesus is the model we follow and the motivation we need to live a life of humility. What kind of humility? Humility that is all about seeking unity with his people. And now as I close, uh, let me say this. Paul uses our Savior as the ultimate example of what it looks like to give of our life 
considering others more important than ourselves, looking to their needs before our own. But Jesus is not, Jesus is not just a model to follow because of what he went through. In that, we look at his story and when we have pity on him, we say, oh my goodness, like look at what happened to our Savior. I should go live like that too. Jesus, the story of the cross, is not something to look at and pity the Savior. The story of the cross is actually about Jesus taking on all of these things willingly and then having power over them. Because, look at the paragraph here. It doesn't end at the end of verse 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, being um, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It ain't done yet, is it? What's it say next? Therefore, therefore, the story didn't end there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Look at this. On, in heaven and on earth and where? Every knee's going to bow to him. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Folks, listen. Every knee one day will bow to Jesus as Lord. Every tongue will one day confess that he's Lord. You can humble yourself under the need for a Savior today and bow your knee to him and confess him as Lord. Or you can deny the need for the gospel. And one day, the Lord will bring that bowing and that confessing. But one way or the other, every tongue one day is going to confess him as Lord. He is Lord of all. And what I love about ending the way we do is we get to end today with people confessing Jesus as Lord. They've put their faith in him, and now they're going to be baptized today to display that before us today. One in this service, two in next service. Um, do we love baptism services around here, huh? Should we get into it? Should we get